Hi, uh, welcome to the Brooks Online Gathering. My name is Muchi Cabo. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, the church. Uh, if this is your first time, we're super excited that you could join with us, that you could connect with us in this moment, in this way. Uh, wherever you are engaging from, uh, there is a link that we would love for you to click on and a form that we would love for you to fill out so that we could get connected to uh, you. Um, but there's not just a link where you're engaging from, there's actually people in the chat uh, sharing thoughts that are resonating with them. Uh, so make yourself known, don't just click on the link, uh, drop a line, drop an emoji, uh, make yourself known in this um, moment. Also, additionally, if you have children, we have an experience and content for them as well via Canvas Corner. We know that Sundays are a toss-up uh, for everybody. They are hit and miss, and if someone says otherwise, they're a liar. Uh, but nevertheless, we do have a Canvas a Corner for our uh, children uh, and a team of leaders who are passionate and dedicated to join parents in the messy yet beautiful and necessary work of raising up the future. So whether you're engaging simultaneously uh, with us or it's before or after, man, don't let your kids get left behind or left out. Engage with Canvas uh, Corner. Uh, I'm looking forward to our time together today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Psalm uh, 90 as we get after it. So annually, you guys as a church afford my family and me the opportunity uh, to get away for a few weeks consecutively for rest and refreshment and a recalibration. And usually on the heels of that getaway, uh, what follows on Sundays is a series of reflections from um, the time of devotion and how God has been massaging uh, my heart in that getaway. And that's actually what's gonna take place uh, for us for the next few weeks is we're gonna have a series of reflections but uh, the caveat is it's not just going to be reflections regarding the last few weeks and, and that time of devotion with the Lord. Honestly, it's really uh, reflections of some ideas that have been circling my heart uh, for the last year plus and really has started to become more crystallized over the last six months in the season that we find ourselves in. In fact, the first idea that we're going to deal with today is the idea of seasons. Uh, and so one of the things that happens when you live in Miami is you give up the reality of seasons as it relates to weather, right? So, so in Miami, well, I mean, I guess you don't give it up fully because we do have hot. Uh, we have Satan is breathing on my neck hot. <laughs> we have, it's humid, ruining my hair and my skin, doing something to my soul, making me want to sin hot. And then we have hurricanes. So, so I guess you do have like four uh, seasons. And in August, it depends on the week. You could just kind of go back and forth with whatever uh, weather it is. But in other places, there is summer, there's fall, there's winter, and there's spring. Uh, but here's what I know that you know, just like we have seasons regarding the weather, there are seasons regarding life. I know this, you know this, that seasons of life exist. Uh, you don't have to be Christian uh, to understand that and or experience the reality of seasons of life. In fact, God has wired it into the fabric of humanity and humans are adept at 
plagiarizing God. And so one of my favorite movies actually comes from a book. It's called A Time to Kill. And it's this story revolving around a man who, who has to take matters into his own hands because those precious to him were violently assaulted. And so what he did was he violently assaulted them in a form of vengeance and he killed them. And the whole idea was, was this the right time to kill? It's a very powerful movie with a lot of moments that really actually, I think, speak to even our moment in time. But that didn't come from an author uh, outside of the scriptures. That came from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where uh, the preacher, the son of David, as he is having these deep theological relational reflections regarding time and, and the world around him, he, he pens that famous passage, there's a time to kill, there's a time to heal, there's a time for war, there's a time for peace, there's a time for so there's a time for... And, and he identifies what we know, that there are certain seasons in life that are defined by a set of experiences and circumstances. Seasons exist and we, we know it. You know what else I know we know? We know that not every season is cut and dry. Like the transition from one season to another isn't always clean like it is with the weather. Sometimes seasons tend to overlap. You know what else I know we know? Is that some seasons we choose and some choose us. Like, so for me, I'm, I'm in this aggressive decluttering space like Maria Kondo. I mean, like, you know, God bless all my stuff. I am decluttering my life uh, professionally, personally, uh, socially, spiritually, and even relationally, where even now I'm just holding some relationships more open-handedly, having to say farewell to relationships that I thought would exist forever. And that sucks, kind of sad. Uh, it's almost this weird space of mourning, uh, mourning what probably will never be because you have fond memories of what once was. And I know there's a lot of people in that weird uh, friendship space, especially as you're friending as an adult. Uh, shout out to uh, my wife and Tab and their recent podcast uh, regarding that. Uh, but can I just even commend something to you uh, if you find yourself in that space that you've chosen to be in that space? Because even over the last few years, there's this wave of like trying to remove toxic people from our lives, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but there is a difference between moving forward and moving on. And when we move forward, if we're moving forward in a relationally healthy way, what we're saying is that there's a, per, a better preferred future, a trajectory that we're after. And with honesty and integrity, we are walking towards that as opposed to moving on, which is really just running from. It's there's some stuff that's taking place that I no longer want to deal with. I'm tired of it. And because I don't want to deal with it because I'm tired of it. I don't want to deal with you. And I'm tired of you. I'm out. And that is unhealthy, super unhealthy. And in reality, it doesn't really work because you can't outrun time and you can't outrun your heart. But that may be a season that you're choosing to be in. But we know that there's some seasons that choose us. Man, you know what? I was looking at my calendar and I thought, this is such a great time for a pandemic. Said no one ever, right? <laughs> you know what? I'm looking at my calendar and for the next four months, all I want is uninterrupted pleasure. So I can't really pencil you in right now because I know that you're going to bring your problems with you. Ah, you know what? 
my season for pain is in the summertime where it's a downtime, you know, with media, with TV and with sports. So you could come in and you could bother me in that space because you're not going to distract me from what I really want in life. Like we don't, we may think like that, but we definitely don't talk like that because we know that some seasons choose us whether we wanted them to or not. All of these reflections that I know you know for me have just been circling in my heart and what has been bubbling to the surface is the reality that how we experience the variety of seasons of life is really shaped by a perspective of eternity. And what, what God has really just, I mean, he has been inserting into my heart, into my thoughts in particular over the last few weeks is that we must, we must progressively and intentionally bring the weight of eternity to bear on the seasons of life we're in. Enter Psalm 90, where you get a collision of reflections and requests from Moses. They are stunning, sobering, and grounded in realism. And as we engage with the reflections and the request that Moses allows us to bear witness to in Psalm 90, the hope is that we would adopt the paradigm as well as the posture of his heart that allows him to not just make do with the seasons of life, but to make the most of the seasons of life. So as we walk through Psalm 90, the movement of our text and our time is one. We're just going to we're just going to camp in this. I mean, this audacious declaration that starts off these series of reflections. And then we're going to move to kind of the interplay that we see in the midst of his reflections. And then we'll close with taking note of some of the requests that he makes that should come to bear on us in our moment right now, Psalm 90, man, it reads so poetically, 17 verses. I'm gonna read it all the way through. It's about a minute and a half, maybe two, depending on how passionately I read. You're more than welcome to read um, with me. Psalm 90, and then we'll get to work. Verse one starts like this. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring, we bring, we bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 
or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let the, your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Man, 17 layered, loaded, rich verses. Verses uh, 1 through 11 are the reflections and the latter part are the requests. But it starts off with this stunning, audacious declaration. You, Lord, have been our dwelling place in all generations. Man, part of the audacity of that is that Moses isn't speaking individualistically. He's speaking collectively. He is identifying himself with a people and he is identifying God's presence, not just with him, but also with others. He's, it's utterly collective. It's beautiful. The rest of the reflections flow out of that collective identification. You have been our dwelling place. Audacious still is the dwelling place dynamic. And so this idea of a dwelling place is a shelter, a refuge, a haven. It's where you go when you need security. It's where you go when you want to retreat and reflect and rest. It's where you live from because it's home. And he says that that dwelling place isn't tied to geographical footprints. It's tied to a relationship. You, God, have been our dwelling place. Audacious still is the fact that this is Moses speaking. Moses said this. Moses, whose very present history, as he's penning Psalm 90, is a season of wandering. It's a season where, because of the, the sin of the people he identified with, not sin that he directly committed, but the sin of their faithlessness that he is bearing the consequence of, the judgment of that he's in a season of wandering. He's in a space of nomadic tendencies, of being functionally homeless. What he says is that the security, the haven, the refuge, the home, the stability 
isn't in a space. Again, it's in a, it's in a person. It's in, it's in God. Stunning and audacious still. It's not just the collective dynamic of it. It's not just the weight of a dwelling place. It's not just that Moses is penning these words. It's the history he's looking back on and looking forward to that allows him to make this statement. So in Deuteronomy 26, Moses pens Deuteronomy. It's a sermon upon sermons upon sermons of how do you interact with God? How do you engage in life in light of who God is? And you get to Deuteronomy 26, where he's saying, you, when you enter into this promised land, when you are able to enter into the fulfillment of the promise of God, not because you earned it, not because you're good, but because God is faithful, when you're finally able to enter into this season of stability geographically when you're able to enter into this season now of receiving provision from the land I want you from God I want you to give her the first fruits of your land and he talks about this idea of generosity and how really it's not God trying to get something from us it's God trying to have something for us which is a closer relationship with him but what he says is so rich to me He says, as you are worshiping generously, there's a story I want you to tell every single time. And it starts off by saying, your father, our father Abraham, was a wandering Aramean. There's a lot to be taken there that we don't have time for. But the point is, he's saying, your father, our father, was a wanderer. Between the time of God calling Abraham out to a place that he doesn't even know in a distant future, and Moses penning this is 685 years. And in the span of 685 years, you have multiple seasons of wandering. That is their heritage to be nomadic, to have a shifting around them. That their wandering led them to Egypt where they sojourned there. And they grew and became populous. It's Deuteronomy 26 again. And they were oppressed. But they cried out and God heard and God saw their affliction and God delivered them. And there was another season of wandering. And what is audacious is he's saying that our heritage seems to be consistent shifting. But though it seems like our heritage is consistently filled with shifting seasons and shifting dynamics, you know what's certain? God is our dwelling place. Though the seasons of life may be shifting, God as our dwelling place doesn't have to be. It's an audacious declaration that leads into the rest of these reflections now he hedges that statement with verse uh, 2 where he talks before the mountains were made before the world was formed you God have been you are everlasting to everlasting and so what is even more encouraging all days about the statement is he's like the certainty of this is tied to you who exist forever it's rich it's robust 
it's settling in the midst of what may be shifting for many of us. But then he starts to go into this interplay. In this interplay, what we see is his reflections regarding the interaction and the interplay between God, humanity, time, and sin. And what's fascinating is verse 2 and 3, they almost have like this summation type vibe where he juxtaposes the eternality of God with the frailty and time-bound nature and dynamics of man. And within that interplay, there's a lot to learn. So verse 4, here's what he says in verse 4 that I think is super fascinating and rich. He says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or watch in the night. So in verse 4, what Moses is doing as he is reflecting is he is lifting his eyes off of the here and now, off of time in the moment to the reality of eternity. He is lifting his eyes towards a more expansive view of time and a more expansive view of the eternality of God. Think about this. 10 years seems like a long time. My oldest just turned 10 a few weeks ago. That's a long time. I'm like, man, you, you get it up there. I'm getting up there. I'm, I got some little gray hairs in here, which is all good. Not even mad at it, right? 10 years seems like a long time until you measure it against 40. And then 40 seems like a long time until you measure it against 100. And then 100 seems like a long time until you measure it against 1,000. And 1,000 years seems like a long time until you measure it against eternity. And you measure it against God. Here's what I know that you know about seasons. Some seasons, good or bad, they just seem to go on and on and on. There's like some seasons and moments that seem to go on and on and on. They seem to just kind of extend endlessly. But this expansive view that is afforded to us shows us that even the seasons and the moments that seem to go on and on are a drop in the bucket in the scope of eternity. He's given us an expansive view. The interplay continues because notice he's not just given us this expansive view regarding God and time and ourselves as well, but he's also like zoning in, like directing our gaze and our attention to the temporal dynamics of humanity. So verse 10, we, we read it, but I mean, it's worth reading again. Verse, verse 10 reads like this. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. You see what he's getting at? What he's getting at is if we blink twice, we can miss a moment. We know that. We know that we could blink twice and miss the beauty of a moment because of how frail and fragile and tender time in the here and now is. He says, look, by reason of strength, maybe you could stretch out that 70 years to 80. So get the right diet, go vegan, maybe be keto, do something, work out, 
and you may get an extra decade at the end of your life. But you don't even know if you will. Because it's frail, it's fragile, we're humans. You know what I know that we also know? Is that because we are fully aware that we have a birthday, because we are fully aware that we will eventually have a death day and we exist in the here and now having seasons of life, what we do is to the best of our ability, we attempt to aggressively extend the seasons we enjoy and abruptly end the seasons we don't. But that reveals that we have been in intoxicated by the illusion of control. This illusion that says, by strength, by ingenuity, by being clever, we can create the desired outcomes we want at an optimal rate. We can't. But control is a reflex of fear. That when we stare at the reality of our death date, that produces something in us. Every single person. It produces this sense of fear. I got to make the most of it. And that sense of fear lends itself to be intoxicated with control and the illusion thereof. But the reflections that have been just bubbling up in my mind are like, wait a second. This verse, while there's a sobering dynamic to it, like when it is attached to the rest of this passage and the larger story of God at work in history, for the Christian, it shouldn't just sober us, but it should excite us. Because yes, there are some pleasures that are temporary. But there's some other pleasures that go on forever. And that's exciting. Even more exciting is there are some experiences of pain that are momentary. But for the Christian, they're just that. Momentary. That for the Christian, all pain and some pleasure has an expiration date. And so as we move closer, we inch ever so slowly to our own mortality that actually moves us to a greater experience attached to the God who exists from everlasting to everlasting. And I say for the Christian because that's not everybody's experience. That is only the experience of those who have stared in the face of their mortality, been awakened to the reality of the sin tied to them, and how that sin is an affront to the God who made them. And instead of trying to deny or deal with their own sin and the brokenness attached to it themselves, they throw their lives at the mercy of God. Say, God, do something, please. This is why the, the interaction with sin that he slips in there is weighty. Like right before verse 10, you do get verse 8 and 9, where he says that, God, 
our iniquities. You have set those before you. You have set that which is wrong and broken in us, that which is wrong and broken around us. You've set that in front of you, in front of your face. Your face. He says, like, there is no secret sin in the light of your presence. Is there a place where our sin can remain hidden? He says, no. Now, he goes on to say, there's no place that you can bury your sin. And if you don't deal with it, the wrath of God will eventually blow you away. But some people use that to intimidate, like a scare tactic. God uses it to liberate, to free us, to draw us in. Because all of us know that we have brokenness inside of us. All of us know that we sin. The question is, what do you do when you're fully aware of the effects of it? Man, parenting is fun, which is code for challenging. <laughs> I've said it before, I'll probably say it until my death day. <laughs> but man, yo, so all of our kids have a sweet tooth. Now part of the reason they have a sweet tooth is because of their extended family. And so a good friend of mine, man, like he, uh, he, he would he used to say to Serenity all the time, when she was six months, you don't know your alphabet yet? You don't know Greek and Hebrew? What is your dad doing? How is he discipling you? He must suck as a human and a pastor. Um, and you know what else he did as he was tearing me down? Uh, he would give my six-month-old daughter Sprite. And then he'd look at us like we were crazy. He's like, oh, she's not supposed to have that? I'm like, my brother, like, yo, what are you, are you, what are you doing? Um, and my, my, my father-in-law, God bless him, I love him, man. He's one of those people that the closer you get to him, the more grateful you are for him. A um, lot of wisdom. But when my daughter was a year old, he gave her Snickers. And I'm like, what is, what is this? What are you doing? And it was actually at that moment that I realized, and it was reiterated in the last few weeks, that grandparents do whatever they want, right? You know, it's, at first, it's like, it's like a metamorphosis. I'm like, that's not who you were when we were growing up. You just kind of changed. That's a sidebar. That's a rabbit. Chased it. It's all good. But because of the sweet tooth dynamic with our kids, like, it leads them to take certain types of candy that I may or may not bring in the house. So man, I had these Starbursts one day. Starbursts and Sour Patch, they're my Achilles heel. That's why I'm not gonna reach 80. So I had this candy one day. And this bag of candy, I put it down in my office. I come back and it's gone. I'm like, yo, what? I didn't eat that. And so I start investigating. And because I pay the bills in my house, I could go in any room I want in my house. So as I'm investigating, I see these wrappers, like a trail of these wrappers to one of our kids' beds, who I will not mention, and like hidden under blankets and pillows, it's all of these wrappers that they tried to bury. And I was like, you jerk. <laughs> and I was like, and you sucked at it. Why not just throw it away? But honestly, that's how we approach our sin. We think that we have 
an effective way to bury what's most broken about us. We don't. In fact, what the scriptures tell us and what we read is that sin is more effective at burying us than we are at burying it. All sin for all time stands in front of the face of God and he confronts it in love. This is broken. This is wrong. I'm not going to blink and pretend like it doesn't exist, but I am going to set in front of my face, not just your sin, but the greatness of my son, Jesus, and he will die for you and instead of you so that you can enter into increasing pleasure forever and unending season with me. Moses gets this. We know he gets this because of the request that he makes. The one of the requests that he makes is like, God, just satisfy us with steadfast love. That's shorthand for God's covenant name. That he is slow to anger, abounding in mercy, full of steadfast love. Moses gets this because as he contemplates the nature of sin in the context of relating to God, relating to time, and relating to humans, he lead, leads into a request, God be merciful, be gracious to us, show off your love. Actually, let's close with these requests. Um, there's a lot here, but there's really two things I wanna note regarding these requests. Verse 12, the first, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That is splendid and pragmatic, but it is often ripped from the richness of the context. And so devoid and divorced from what we just read, that could just come off as like, you know, just make the most of your days. And that's not what it means. That is not the essence of what it means. That we may gain a heart of wisdom. There's this idea of God teach us to live in a humble way in light of eternity and to live wisely so that we can experience what you have for us in the here and now. Way beyond just know that you're going to die and make the most of your life. In fact, when you search the scriptures, this, even this idea of wisdom, what you see is God is infinitely more interested in making us wise than just giving us a cheat sheet for what is a wise decision. And that interest in making us wise moves us closer into relationship where we start to know his heart and know his mind and see like he sees both relating to eternity as well as the everyday, the seasons of life. I love that first request. It kicks off what we should see as requests that are birthed from a heart of humility. But it's not just a heart of humility, it's a heart that's hungry. Look at this. Satisfy us. I'm hungering for this. Make us glad. We've had days of affliction and sorrow in the here and now. God, would you make us glad for as many days that we're sorry and trash and sucky and terrible. He's hungry for that. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. God, 
Expand our view of who you are and how you're at work amongst your people, the people for whom you are a dwelling place in all generations. He's hungry for it. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Let God's special, unique power and presence rest on his people. I'm hungry for it, but why? Why hunger for favor? So that you, O oh God, would establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I'm hungry to build something that's beautiful in the here and now that extends beyond it. As we're living, there is a life worth experiencing and a work worth accomplishing that is tied to relationship. It causes us to have weight to the way we interact in the variety of seasons we experience. Oh, that Moses' reflections would start to dominate ours, especially today. To that end, let's pray. God, I pray that we would be dominated in our hearts and minds all day by Psalm 90. <laughs> I pray that we would not be able to move an inch or a moment without contemplating the weight of eternity and how it should bear beautifully, wonderfully, spectacularly, whatever other adjective we could think of on life in the here and now. As we reflect, God, I pray that you would give us the humility and the hunger to make requests like Moses did. That you would, by grace, move us in maturing in wisdom. That you would return and have mercy. That you would show off who you are and how you're working, expanding our view. And that your unique power and presence would rest on us, not for us alone, but that work can be done for you. In your name we pray, Jesus, and ask all these things. Amen.